This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Support us by setting up a regular donation. That's the best way to help us make long-term plans to maintain our community radio facilities and support our many broadcasters. So please do visit fundraiser.resonance.fm and set up a regular donation. This week, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and we're discussing the situation for artists in Turkey, working under the increasingly authoritarian rule of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who became president of the country in 2014 after 11 years as prime minister. Joining me in the studio today are the London-based art critic Fissan Gunner and the performance artist Tuna Erdem. Fissan Gunner has written for The Guardian, BBC Culture, The Quietus, Metro, Art Quarterly and many other places and has been visual arts editor on various publications. She also makes videos of artists for Elephant magazine and has appeared on many TV and radio shows including Front Row as well as sharing her films on Jasper Johns, Eduardo Palozzi and other artists on her YouTube channel. You can find her work at fissanguna.com. We'll share the link on SoundCloud and Twitter later on. Tuna Erdem is a London-based artist, curator and independent scholar. She's a founding member of the Istanbul Queer Art Collective, which is predominantly engaged in live art and queer art projects, which curates art events like exhibitions, screenings, performances and conferences. She holds an MA in Film and Art Theory from the University of Kent and a PhD in Film, TV and Theatre from Reading University. Fissan, Tuna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So before we begin our conversation, I want to give some context for our listeners who may not be familiar with Recep Tayyip Erdogan or the nature of his rule. Um, he was a football player for the Istanbul-based club Kasim Pasha in his youth, um, didn't make it as a professional, but became mayor of Istanbul in 1994, representing the welfare party on an Islamist platform and describing himself as a conservative democrat. He lost his position and was sent to prison for four months in 1998 after reciting a poem promoting a religious view of government, after which he abandoned Islamism and founded the conservative AKP, which won a landslide victory in the Turkish election of 2002, shortly after a financial crash. The AKP's co-founder, Abdullah Gül, rescinded the ban on Erdogan holding political office, and so Erdogan became prime minister in March 2003. In 2005, he began negotiations for Turkey to join the European Union, as yet unsuccessful, partly due to EU concerns over Turkey's worsening human rights record. In government, the AKP pursued a neo-Ottoman foreign policy, seeking closer relationships with countries that were part of the Ottoman Empire before Turkey became an independent nation in 1923. In late 2012, Erdogan's government began negotiations with the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, to end the PKK insurgency that had begun in 1978. But the talks stalled, and his rule took a sharply dictatorial turn after the Occupy Gezi protests in 2013, which were reacting in part to the AKP's increasing authoritarianism. In the general election in uh, 2015, um, the left-wing parliamentary Kurdish party, the HDP, um, passed the uh, 10% threshold to enter government, which led to a hung parliament and a snap election in November, in which the AKP regained its majority. Since then, there's been plenty of international attention on Turkey's involvement in the war in Syria, and how Erdogan has used it to clamp down on domestic dissidents, especially from the HDP, which, as well as representing the Kurds, has also been pro-LGBT and pro-feminist. The failure of the attempted military coup in July 2016 led to numerous attacks on press freedom under a state of emergency that was originally intended to last three months but was repeatedly extended. In April 2017, Erdogan won a referendum that abolished the the post of Prime Minister and vastly increased the power of the presidency. He won by an extremely narrow margin, with concerns raised about one and a half million unstamped votes being counted amongst the total. He was re-elected last year amidst a currency and debt crisis caused in part by his unorthodox interest rate policies and his dictatorial style more widely. Um, so that's some background on Erdogan and his rule. Um, you know, I want to focus the conversation today on the relationship between art and artists and the 
Turkish government censorship and the political circumstances more widely. Um, it's widely acknowledged that Erdogan's rule became sharply more authoritarian after the Gezi protests of 2013, which we will come back to shortly. But there were some signs of an increasing authoritarianism in the years running up to then. Um, Turkey's most famous novelist, Orhan Pamuk, or most famous living novelist, was tried in 2005 for discussing the Armenian genocide that killed about one and a half million Armenians in the years leading up to the foundation of independent Turkey in the 1920s. Orhan Pamuk was tried in 2005 for discussing this, as well as talking about mass killings of Kurds, and later fined uh, 6,000 Turkish liras. The um, Another very famous contemporary Turkish novel, Elif Shafak, her first novel, The Bastard of Istanbul, also dealt with the difficult legacy of the genocide. Uh, and another novelist and journalist, Ahmet Altan, uh, was prosecuted for denigrating Turkishness in 2008 for publishing an article dedicated to the victims of the genocide. Um, so concerns were rising more than 10 years ago about the attitude of the Erdogan government to free expression in journalism and in culture. Nonetheless, Erdogan said in 2009 that the old Turkey who used to sentence its great writers to prison is gone forever. And as it turned out, that wasn't the case. Uh, Erdogan was referring, I think, to the poet uh, Nazim Hikmet, who was repeatedly jailed in the 40s and 50s. Uh, people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Pablo Picasso signed letters of support. Um, and notably, there was a statement from the Istanbul Biennial that year, 2009, which said that politically neutral art is a means of policing the art world. Uh, again, we'll be talking about what it became possible to say and express through artistic means in Turkey over the following decade during the course of the show. Um, equally ominously, the um, journalist writer uh, Eche Temel Kuran was fired from Habertürk newspaper in 2012 for publishing columns criticising Erdogan. Um, and the um, Turkish Penn International board member uh, Burhan Sonmez uh, at this time became quite fond of reciting an old line that was popular in Turkey saying, if you want to be a writer, you need to go to prison. Um, Sonmez said, yes, this is a good joke, but it's also reflective of the um, the situation in Turkey throughout the last kind of hundred years. But I want to really um, focus on the Gezi Park protests of 2013 and their aftermath. So, Tuna, I'd like to turn to you here for um, for a brief conversation about the Gezi protests because I know that you were you were present. Uh, yes, uh, I happen to be living in Jihangir, which is like 10 minutes walk from Taksim Square, which is the uh, center of Istanbul, basically. If any uh, of our listeners has ever been to Istanbul, I'm sure they've been to Taksim and Beyoğlu. Uh, so it rather happened on my doorstep. And I can't give the kind of historical background that you've been giving so far. I mean, it for me, it was a first-hand experience and a very emotional one at that. Uh, I was there from the beginning to the end. And uh, basically what happened was uh, it's officially started on the 31st of May um, and uh, that was a night uh, of resisting to the police. One year later I actually uh, made with Istanbul Queer Art Collective a performance com commemorating that night and at the beginning of that I uh, wrote a small thing explaining that night as well so I'm going to read that because that's going to be the easiest way to explain what it was like. Uh, on the 31st First of May uh, 2013, as unexpected and as predictable as a balloon exploding under pressure, the Occupy Gezi movement began in Istanbul. It was a night filled with water cannons, tear gas and police violence, but more importantly, with resistance, solidarity and wonder. The LGBT community was among the millions that took to the streets to prevent the demolition of Gezi Park, which is, among other things, a cruising place for gay men and transsexuals. Exactly one year later, in anticipation of an anniversary demonstration, police closed down not only Gezi Park, but Taksim Square, the city centre in which the park is located. On that night, we reenacted re the Fluxus performance in memoriam, in memory of our friend, the drag queen Umut Sural, who had lung disease and died shortly after Gezi. Whether the gas he inhaled during Gezi had anything to do with his death, we shall never know. 
Uh, I've said this because there was a lot of that uh, within Gezi as well, but as I said, it was a wondrous event. The only way I can explain it is think of uh, Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus and Soho being occupied by millions of people and for 10 days not a single policeman entering the vicinity. That is the kind of thing as it was. Uh, I don't like to make comparisons <laughs> like this, but I mean, that's the feeling that we had. Uh, it ended when the police came back on the 15th of June. Uh, and on the 16th of June, the police were banging on my flat door, basically. That's how much involved I was in uh, all this. Uh, so uh, artists in general uh, were involved as well. There was a lot of art going on during that 10-day interval where there was no police in Gezi Park at all. Uh, a lot of performance art uh, was done. But I think maybe the most uh, famous of them has been uh, the performance that was done after Gezi uh, was sort of sort of ended. Uh, it never really ended uh, as precisely as on the 15th of June. Uh, but uh, it is called the Standing Man performance. Uh, it was uh, after everyone was extremely disappointed about how Gezi ended and we were, everyone was thinking what's next? What will we ever be able to demonstrate ever again? Uh, and so uh, this performance artist just went and stood uh, in Taksim Square doing nothing. Uh, he was called the Standing Man. It became uh, an extremely um, influential thing. Everyone started to stand. And of course, once a lot of people started to stand, they, were st they started to arrest these people. But it spread all over the country. Everyone started to uh, stand in different places all over Turkey. So I guess I think that was like uh, one of the most um, influential performance art pieces that has ever been done uh, uh, at all. Uh, so I believe that um, performance and Gezi had a lot uh, of connection because actually the whole occupation was a performative act as well. It was symbolic more than anything else. Uh, it was claiming the public space and uh, so performance art that did that uh, became an intricate part of it. Yeah, I mean, the Gezi protests were, I think, an incredibly diverse mixture of people. There was a big LGBT and queer presence at the protests, as you've said. Also, a lot of students. Um, I met one of the students who'd been present last year. I went to Istanbul for a week and I met someone who'd been a 17-year-old student at Gezi at the time, um, who also said that there were quite a lot of football fans present because football is a really big thing in Turkey and there's not so much public green space for people to just play in um, in central Istanbul. Um, so it's a surprising mixture of people, but the at the time, the availability of public space was a big political issue. Um, Fissan, I want to bring you in here because I know you were at the Istanbul Biennial in 2013. Um, and you had some conversations about how the biennial was planning to use public space in, in Istanbul. Yeah, the theme of the um, of that year's Biennale was um, rather presciently public space. Um, and a lot of the artworks um, were due, uh, uh, and there was a lot of performance art actually uh, with the Biennale that year. Um, a lot of the artworks were due to take place outside um, but because of events that summer, it was decided to bring it back. And the director, um, Fulya Erdemji, she um, said that actually it was her decision uh, to really... She wasn't forced indoors. It was her decision to kind of um, go indoors as a kind of um, silent protest. She didn't want to feel that uh, she was giving uh, a PR uh, message to the world that everything was just fine and normal. So so the theme of a public space, you know, was kind of inverted and it was all taken indoors. And a lot of the artists, actually, just a few months after uh, the protests, were ad addressing uh, the protests uh, very visibly. You know, there's an artist... Uh, performance artist, I suppose, uh, the multimedia artist called Inji Eviner, and she co-opted lots of students um, from the local universities um, and 
it was a, a very collaborative, performative um, uh, artwork that she created, and um, part of that was a map of Taksim Square and Gezi Park, um, produced by the architecture students who were invited to participate, and um, they were uh, documenting their own um, protests and activity uh, onto the map as a kind of symbol of resistance. Um, and you know, Inge Evinair said that um, you know she wanted to art uh, historians to look at this map in thirty years' time and see these individual stories of resistance and un to understand what was happening through the lens of the protesters. Yeah. Um, the the Gezi protests, uh, yeah, certainly radically changed the nature of Erdogan's government and I think obviously changed the nature of work made in response as well. I want to pick up a bit further about the... Um, changing status of LGBT people in Turkey after Gezi. I mean, the um, the Gezi protests ended in a police clampdown um, on all sorts of dissidents. Uh, we've already talked about the rise of the HDP, the kind of socialist Kurdish party, and how that um, changed the face of Turkish politics and provoked quite a um, kind of rattled reaction from Erdogan, Stephanie sensed it as a threat to his power, um, especially with the collapse of the ceasefire talks with the PKK that we mentioned at the start of the show. Um, there was definitely a notable change in Erdogan's attitude to the LGBT community after Gezi um, and amongst Turkish society more generally. So the mayor of Ankara banned pride parades in the Turkish capital in 2015. Um, LGBT people were targeted partly because the HDP had taken up a pro-LGBT position um, and all of these things clamped down on art in public spaces, um, Gezi and clamped down on the LGBT community and particularly sex workers and particularly transgender sex workers uh, tie in with a sort of gentrification of Istanbul and especially its famous Beyoğlu district and the İstiklal street that runs through the centre of it. Um, so, Tuna, I wondered if you had any more to, to add on that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Istiklal Street is very important for the LGBT community because that's where the Istanbul uh, LGBT Pride Parade happens every year on the last uh, Sunday uh, of June. And interestingly enough, right after uh, Gezi, uh, we had the uh, biggest gay pride parade ever to happen on Istiklal. Uh, one year before Gezi, it was just 10,000 people. Uh, right after Gezi, on the uh, end of June, basically, um, there was 50,000 people walking. So there was this exponential uh, increase due to Gezi because everyone had visibly seen how LGBT community was part of Gezi, an important part of Gezi, uh, and a visible one as well. I mean, when they were fighting with the police, they were they had uh, rainbow flags with them. Uh, people were in drag while they were fighting and things like that. So it was very visible, and all of a sudden everyone was much more interested. So that year's Pride was a huge thing, and it was a huge thing for for me as well as being part of it so that uh, a year later when the uh, Pride time came there was an exhibition and we contributed as Istanbul Queer Arts Collective with a, a work called uh, 50,000 because we thought that number was enormous uh, we've never had that before and what we did was we sat down in front of the uh, rainbow flag that was a part of the parade since its inception which was 13 years ago uh, <laughs> and uh, we spent 12 hours uh, hammering uh, 50,000 nails we wanted to give the impression of the bodily sensation of the amount we're talking about sort of a thing but interesting enough uh, it was shown in an exhibition for the pride week and that year as well one year after gezi we had the pride parade the police didn't prevent it at all uh, so it was even bigger there was now a uh, hundred thousand people attending but unfortunately that was the very last pride that ever happened the next year 
when we went uh, this the next year though was right after the elections the elections happened on the 7th of june uh, and on the 28th of june there was to be the pride parade but the police prevented it uh, this is in 2015 yes yeah. 2015 sorry uh, yes uh, but uh, we went out thinking that it would happen, as it always did until then, uh, but the police stopped it. Uh, I had to run away from uh, police all day long uh, in drag costume, uh, which is how I attended these uh, events, uh, basically. So actually, it wasn't right after Gezi. Right after Gezi, there was even bigger uh, pride parades. But uh, it is interesting that it's right after the election because I think it's not just about Gezi, but uh, the realization uh, by Erdogan that uh, LGBT people, just like the Kurdish minority, uh, have an effect on the outcome of the elections. And he decided these groups are to be taken seriously. I think the only reason that we had 13 pride parades in Istanbul was because nobody was taking us seriously until then. Once they started to take us seriously, they banned it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's, uh, well, another thing that's happening at the time very notably uh, during this period, the kind of mid-2010s, is the Turkish involvement on the war in Syria. And uh, again, you know, this greatly and directly affected uh, the Kurdish people, both in Syria and in Turkey's borders with Syria and elsewhere. Um of course, the uh, three-year-old Syrian Kurdish refugee, Alan Kurdi, who died in September 2015, became um, global news after a Turkish first photojournalist, uh, Nilofer Demir, uh, captured his body washed up on Bodrum Beach. Um, and censorship of images and films relating to the conflict um, became more noticeable. Um, there's a documentary shot in secret in Kurdish camps in southern Turkey uh, about the Kurdish Workers' Party, the PKK, uh, called North, or Bakur, uh, by a filmmaker called Chayan Demirel and a journalist called Ertuğrul Mavioliu. Um, and this was due to be shown in the Istanbul Film Festival in 2015 and wasn't shown because the Minister of Culture asked for certification documents uh, and the documents were withheld as a form of censorship. So 23 filmmakers pulled out of the festival in solidarity, uh, more than 100 artists, including, I think, Turkey's most famous living filmmaker, uh, Nuri Bilgis Selan, um, published an open letter accusing the government of oppression and censorship. Uh, and then the ministry then denied funds to people who'd signed the letter. Uh, the Turkish Minister of Culture tweeted that North was propaganda for, for terrorism. Um, Fissan, I don't know if you have anything to add on um, sort of documentaries covering Gezi or any of the other issues that we've I think film, uh, as opposed to visual arts, has been uh, particularly hit. I mean, in 2004, just two years after uh, Erdogan came to power, uh, there was the Cinema Act, which basically means that in order to get a commercial release for their films, you know, they have to get a license, they have to be registered. So, um, I mean, this is the, the, the, the, the censorship of uh, film has, um, there's an increasing state control. And I think to a large extent, um, the visual arts have escaped this because, you know, in, in, in Turkey, there were really two major big families which uh, fund and sponsor the art. You know, it, it, it, it, the, the Biennale relies on private money, the um, Museum of the Modern Art Istanbul, that's uh, which. Um, it's it's it's it's uh, a, a museum of uh, modern art, but Turkish art particularly. That's funded by private money, um, so it it's been much more visible. Uh, uh, you know that the the, the, the um, censorship has been much more visible in film, and that there was a documentary that was was banned in the aftermath of Gezi, the Gezi Park process protests um on it was about the the, the protests uh, and that was bas basically banned outright in 2014 so um but with the I, I get a sense with the visual arts it's it's um because it relies so much on the market and private money um that it's given more of a sense of urgency uh but they've 
largely but not altogether obviously escaped uh sort of overt censorship yeah um i think we will return to ways in which the government was able to control funding for visual arts uh institutions um over the course of the next kind of half an hour um just for listeners to remind you you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM uh, I'm your host Juliet Jakes and today we are discussing um, art and politics in um, President Erdogan's Turkey particularly over the the last 10 years um, I want to move the conversation on now uh, the period we've been talking about from 2013 to 2016 there were growing anxieties over um, terrorist attacks uh, human rights violations and censorship um, all of these uh, anxieties increased sharply after the uh, the coup attempt in July 2016. Um, so there was an attempted military coup uh, that summer, which included an attempt on Erdogan's life, bombing of parliament and uh, the deaths of 270 people. Um, 150,000 people in the aftermath of this failed coup were either fired from their jobs, uh, detained or arrested. Uh, so a group called the Peace at Home Council, which was a faction of the Turkish Armed Forces, tried to seize control of key sites in Istanbul, in Ankara and other cities, um, as well as the, the numbers killed that we just mentioned. There were 2,000 people injured, uh, but the coup attempt was defeated by the state forces. Uh, Erdogan said that one of the people behind the coup was a cleric and businessman called Fatullah Gulen, um, who leads a movement called Hizmet, which was prescribed as a terrorist organization. Um, this organization had called for moderate and democratic Islam in the face of uh, Erdogan's growing attempts over the previous kind of 10 years to introduce a more um, Islamist form of government. Um, Gulen was a former ally of Erdogan, uh, but in 2013, Erdogan had closed this network of prep schools that Gulen had backed. Uh, Gulen was exiled to the US, Pennsylvania, um, and from there he accused Erdogan of orchestrating the coup himself to consolidate his own power. Um, whether or not that's true, certainly Erdogan used the coup to do exactly that. Um, he declared a state of emergency, which was then extended five times. Um, independent judiciary was effectively abolished uh, various festivals and concerts were closed down theaters were banned academics were fired uh, 89 mayors were replaced by appointed trustees um, and cultural and artistic centers that promoted the kurdish language uh, were particularly targeted according to the government's official gazette 16 television channels, 45 newspapers, 15 magazines and 29 publishers were closed with the police ordering that 47 journalists be detained um, and that really set the tone for Erdogan's rule from summer of 2016 to the present. Um, in 2016 an LGBTQI uh, activist and sex worker uh, Hande Kanda was killed by a gang um, the trans activist uh, Diren Koshkun was imprisoned in August 2017 and released uh, in December. Uh, and there were further attacks on LGBT freedom of expression. People were scared to organise events. Uh, long-standing LGBT events were forced to close or change their names. Um, so, Tuna, I wondered if you would like to add any more about the uh, worsening climate for LGBT people um, since the coup attempt. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, the state of emergency, of course, uh, accelerated the process that had started uh, after the general elections of 2015. Uh, and um, it's interesting to note that um, this, uh, the whole thing behind Gezi and uh, later this whole discourse about the new Turkey uh, is based on um, a culture war as much as anything else. Uh, so um, it, is in uh, it is no coincidence that uh, a lot of the attacks were towards uh, artists and scholars and people who uh, create the cultures uh, had created the cultures uh, of the country uh, since the inception of the uh, republic uh, really uh, so we always talk about how uh, Gezi was about the demolition of the Gezi park but it was also about the demolition of the cultural center uh, in the middle of Taksim Square which is now gone <laughs> basically uh, so um, it is um, 
interesting that although there was this coup attempt that had nothing to do with these people because it was between Gulen and Erdogan, which uh, these people actually did, didn't know about Gulen until Erdogan told <laughs> people about him. Uh, so although it was about that, uh, it ended up uh, having a huge effect uh, on the uh, people in the cultural industry as well. And uh, LGBT, uh, in any cultural event in the name of LGBTQ uh, was banned, basically. So they sort of Uh, use their state of emergency powers to attack both the LGBT and the uh, cultural sector uh, at the same time. Uh, but they are also, uh, I have to say that this is always being done in the name of protecting the LGBT people. This is very important. They're not uh, going out and saying, we don't want you to do this, do that. We're saying, if you do this, you know how uh, awful the situation is in the country. People might attack you and we don't have the means to protect you that this is the explanation that is being given and this explanation is also used to mobilize uh, hate crimes as well i mean there when the, when you come out uh, as the head of the country and say that uh, when you do uh, things like this a lot of people in the country as you know are very aggressive towards uh, gay people and they might attack you and we don't have the means at the moment to protect you they're actually <laughs> calling some people to come and attack so uh, Um, I have to say, for instance, uh, during uh, 2016, uh, the gay uh, pride parade decided on their own to disperse rather than try to come together and uh, have a clash with the police because they thought a hate attack it was very much uh, possible. So in the end, what happens is you decide not to do things as well because this is a serious uh, risk uh, as well. So it's not just about trying to resist the government or the bans or the police. It is also, it turns into this very stressful atmosphere. I think that's one of the reasons why I left the country in the end. Everyone was about to... Uh, have a uh, physical argument within the streets even it, uh, itself. And this was propagated by Erdogan, who kept on dividing the country in his discourse, saying there's 50% that wants these things and 50% that are against these things. And he, uh, you could actually feel that kind of uh, pressure uh, in the streets itself. Although I have to say, uh, I don't know what happened during the coup attempt, but again, I was in Jahangir and I spent the night with jet planes uh, going on top of my house, uh, my neighbor's windows breaking under the pressure of sonic bombs. We had no idea, but obviously all of this uh, creates a situation in which you don't uh, feel at all. I didn't, so I ended up coming here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's particularly interesting to think about this, um, this clampdown on the LGBT community for two reasons. I think one is that... Turkey actually um, never criminalized um, LGBT people per se. Um, and in fact, the Ottoman Empire decriminalized homosexuality in, I think, the 1830s. So actually one of the first places in the world to do it. Um, or to kind of make it explicit that it was decriminalized. Um, the other reason, of course, is that during the um, earlier part of his um his governance uh, lgbt um erdogan was was far more tolerant of lgbt people uh you know notably he was friends with um the transsexual singer performer bulan ersoy um and i think still is um and had quite a complicated relationship with the lgbt community um and indeed the kind of secular Uh, government of Turkey that preceded him. So, Tuna, I don't know if you wanted to add any more on, on that. Uh, definitely. At the first part of, uh, during the first part of his reign, let's say, uh, he was uh, definitely very tolerant towards LGBT people. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that we had these huge parades and uh, stuff like that was because of this. Uh, before his time, actually, there was this... Uh, complete invisibility of LGBT people. Uh, but I don't want to give the wrong impression, uh, especially in terms of transsexuals. There's uh, Turkey is one of the countries with the highest rate of hate crimes, and uh, there is transsexuals being killed every year uh, 
in unbelievable amounts. So I'm not trying to give the impression that that really changed. That's what he's using right now, actually, that base of hate. Uh, but he did allow uh, LGBT NGOs to flourish and uh, ask for uh, their rights in the beginning. Uh, I think Gezi was a turning point for that. He decided that uh, we weren't being thankful enough <laughs> towards him, basically, and he'll show us how what might happen if we're not kind of a thing. Uh, so, yes, I mean, at the moment, uh, we are called the Istanbul Queer Art Collective and we can't do anything in Turkey because you're not supposed to do cultural things in mm -hmm. that name anymore. Uh, of course, um, uh, it is true that you can do it in under other names and people will continue to do so and I think it's important to underline this that people are continuing to do this I mean I don't want to give the impression that it's all over there people are working very hard to make it happen they change names which is uh, sad but it's good that they continue to try and represent and present LGBT presence through arts yeah I mean I had an interesting conversation which I will tweet out after the show when we send out a lot of the things we talked about. I interviewed um, Esmerai, who is a Kurdish trans um, writer and performer, um, who often did performances about her own life to educate people about the lives of trans people in, in Turkey. Um, and, you know, she mentioned the military coup in 1980 and the rather oppressive climate um, that followed followed the coup. And then this sort of liberalization in some senses in the 90s although she said the police actually were very aggressive towards lgbt people in the 90s uh, and then a kind of a liberalization in the noughties and then things getting kind of worse again and she was actually quite philosophical about this kind of process of progress and reaction um whereas say the students i met through the lgbt society at one of the universities just you know these 18 19 year old students said they couldn't get out of turkey quick enough one of the things that would happen to them is that once a month they would organize a film screening which would literally be like 10 of them in a room and they would get doxxed by the one of the like istanbul newspapers so their names and faces would be published every time they organized this film screening um so as we've maybe seen in certain other places it remains legal to be LGBT, but any kind of cultural expression is strictly uh, clamped down upon. And this has tied in with uh, a wider attack on freedom of expression in Turkey, I think, especially that has um, has really escalated since, since the coup, um, the coup attempt. So in the wake of the coup attempt, um, the Şenekale, Biennial uh, and Istanbul's Art International Fair of 2016 were both cancelled. Um, Turkey left the European Union's Creative Europe Cultural Fund in October 2016 uh, in reaction to a €200,000 grant being given to the uh, Dresdner Sinfonica concert about victims of the Armenian genocide. Um, and of course, you know, Germany has a large Turkish uh, emigre population. Um, so cultural relationships between Turkey and Germany are particularly important. Um, and Turkey's decision to leave this cultural fund also means it can no longer have partnerships with European organisations and galleries are more reliant on domestic funds. So Fissen, I wondered if you maybe had anything to add on um, on these issues around kind of funding and whether it can kind of constitute a culture of censorship less directly um, well, I, I, because the visual arts relies almost entirely, I mean entirely, uh, I, I should say, on, on, you know, philanthropy. I mean, there are two families, as I mentioned, the Koch family who um, sponsored the Biennale and many other um, events. And, um, uh, and there was some controversy, actually, in 2013, because they're also the... Um, uh, they also, you know, the Koch family also produced military hardware. So there's a, you know, there's another tension going on. And and, and um, I, I, I suppose that, that it, it, I mean, Turkish art, um, because it relies so much on, on, pri on the private sector, then there is a kind of... Um, uh, not censorship, but you're um, you're bowing to the market. Uh, 
and that produces its own issues, its own problems. It's all about, you know, how commercial your art can be. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, com very successful, highly successful commercial out there. Uh, uh, uh, and so that kind of um, makes possibly, you know, more political work uh, that has a narrower kind of outlet, I suppose. Yeah, so so it, obviously be, being completely market-driven has its own problems. Um, but individual artists don't feel, I mean, the LBG and the Kurdish artists, I mean, they, they feel a particular pressure. But... Um, uh, many artists obviously don't feel the pressure that filmmakers are under uh, because, you know, film festivals are, are feeling that kind of censorship directly. So, but yeah, uh, if you have the commercial sector and the market driving uh, the artwork, then that has its own issues. But that that that that's not unique to Turkey. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's that's uh, no, that's that was very true of say Ukraine, where I spent the summer. Yeah. Um, you know, the Ukrainian art scene is driven almost entirely by the whims of a tiny number of um, of wealthy but, but, people. But artists, I mean, especially when I went to visit the Biennale and talk to many, many artists, and they were all, every single one of them was involved in the Gezi Bahok process, protests. All of their work, really, well, most of the artists I spoke to, their work addressed the really urgent issues um, of, the, of the day that were directly, their work was directly involved in um, as a, a responding to the protests, or they were, in, you know, their... Um, their work was uh, looking at gentrification. I don't think we've mentioned that Istanbul is is is is rapidly trans is, has rapidly transformed. You know, new buildings are going up, corporate buildings are growing up. It's it's it's a kind of tragedy, really. <laughs> uh, aesthetically, I mean, architecturally, so much is changing, and I'm sure since I was last there in 2013. I don't think I'd recognise much of it. Um, I mean, there's an artist called Halil Altinzer, one of the most prominent video artists. He died. He addresses issues like gentrification uh, directly, and how the face of Istanbul is completely changing. Uh, I mean, he's, he's an artist who's got a, an international standing. And at Gezi Park, he was showing a video that he made called Wonderland of these rap artists, rap, rap, rap singers. Um, they're all teenagers from the Sulukule area, which has, there were Roma, uh, Roma Turks, and it's had a Roma present, that area of, of Istanbul, which is uh, geographically in the peninsula, the historic peninsula of Istanbul. Uh, a Roma community has lived in that area since about the 15th century. I mean, it's old. And, and, and all that was being built over and they were being displaced. And uh, Altindere, he made a video of these, um, these rap singers um, who've now cut an album, you know, they're quite big. He gave them a, a big platform. Uh, and they were called The Rebellion on Destruction. And uh, he produced this most fantastic kind of... It was part gangster movie, part kind of pop video that he produced of these, uh, you know, these, these uh, Roma youth, completely addressing what was happening to their ancient community. So the gentrification issue, artists are are addressing it head on um it's you know their, their work there's there's a real sense of urgency and there has been in the last five years actually since and that's one of the ironies i think when you have a situation uh of censorship of authoritarianism uh it can be a springboard for an um, it can be an amazingly creative force, and that's one of the ironies. Yeah, and and that's what's happened. There's been an amazingly uh, creative response. So in one way, the contemporary art has flourished, uh, you, you, but you don't want to applaud, you know, 
how, why, the reasons why, but there is a sense of urgency. So it's a very double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean, I want to just talk a little bit more about the flip side of that. Um, so, you know, with regards to gentrification, uh, I spoke to people from a lot of smaller galleries in Istanbul who found that they were just, like, losing their spaces or being forced further into the margins. And Istanbul, like London, uh, has a lot of smaller art spaces where uh, new artists might kind of break through and show their work. Uh, a lot of those spaces are being lost. Um, at the other end of the scale uh, Istanbul Modern the biggest um, gallery in the city is closed for the next three years while it undergoes this massive redesign by Renzo Piano the star architect um, who I think did the shard um, mm, yeah. and um, you know they had a final show uh, called the Time Regulation Institute that I went to um, named after a novel by one of Turkey's most famous writers uh, Ahmet Hamdi Tampina um, and this included um you know, this really showcased Turkey's, Turkey's uh, rich visual arts history. Uh, there were lots of photographs by the famous photographer Ara Gula, who sadly died last year. Um, works by more contemporary artists, um, but lots of older works as well that did offer a kind of overt political critique of things that were happening in Turkey or elsewhere, but who were kind of safely in the past. Um, for example, um, I particularly enjoyed Yuxel Aslan's work, uh, drawing on Marx's capital. Uh, but these were all from the 70s. Uh, you know, more recently, um, the artist Zara Duran uh, was imprisoned for exhibiting um, an image of the a painting of the Kurdish town of Neusaybin after its destruction by Turkish forces. And it had Turkish flags hanging out of the bombed out buildings, which caught the attention of the government, who... Um, gave her a three-year sentence which she's currently serving uh, the court claimed that these paintings proved that Doan was uh, connected to the PKK who we mentioned earlier um, but we've talked a lot about um, philanthropy and uh, funding and governmental attacks on uh, funding and funders and I think one of the most important um, cases is the um, the arrest of uh, Osman Kavala, who is a Turkish philanthropist, supported a number of cultural causes, including the IF Film Festival, which is held in Istanbul, Izmir, and Ankara, which was the occasion of my visit last year. Um, Kavala uh, was arrested in October 2017 for attempting to overthrow the constitutional order after returning from Gaziantep in the south of Turkey, where he was starting a cultural centre for Syrian refugees. Um, in support of Kavala, artists turned Depo, one of the main galleries in Istanbul, into a kind of prison and they held readings for him uh, and made work in shifts. Um, but 13 activists and academics were detained in relation to the Kavala case and to the Occupy Gezi protests. Um, and these included the uh, filmmaker Shidiem Mata and um, Arsene Gunal. Um, and there are also a number of arrests on journalists and writers. Um, the chair of the HDP, Salahattin Demirtas, was jailed in November 2016 on trumped-up terrorism charges shortly after the parliament had voted to remove um, MPs' immunity. Um, Demirtas actually ran for president uh, from the prison cell, um, did his campaign speech via a phone call to his wife, which was shared on social media. Um, and partly as a result, there's also been a big, big clampdown on social media in Turkey. Um, and, you know, there is partly because there is an issue with 90% of Turkish media being owned by pro-government businesses, journalists being given travel bans. Um, the Committee to Protect Journalists said that Turkey had the world's worst record on jailing journalists with 68 of them in prison. At the end of 2018, uh, with thousands of social media accounts being investigated and, um, you know, users being sent to judicial authorities last year. I mean, the um, Istanbul Biennial in 2017 was curated by Elm Green, Elm Green and Dragset uh, and it had a theme of what makes a good neighbour uh, and included um, not too much politically contentious work and very little mention of Erdogan. Or the AKP. Um, it did include a piece by the Moroccan French visual artist Latifa 
a chank uh, featured concrete walls with a flaking mural of the protests in Gezi Park, um, and the decay was symbolic of the pessimism that followed that moment of defiance. Also included a work by a Kurdish artist, Erkan Ozgen, of a deaf boy from Syria, acting out some of the traumas that he'd witnessed. Uh, and a new work by Brazilian artist Victor Lagoy, made in collaboration with refugees from a lot of them from Syria who are now living in Istanbul. Um, but um, it's notable that uh, Ismail Elia, the, um, one of the artistic directors of an arts collective in Istanbul called Yoyanch Luk, um, apologies for my pronunciation, <laughs> um, and he said, no gallery would show my work if I was making political art. Art in Turkey, in my opinion, it's getting superficial. And in this biennial, it's obvious that it's on purpose that you cannot see the politics in the art, otherwise they wouldn't let it go ahead. Um, so at the moment, I think it, you know, in lots of ways, it looks like quite a bleak situation. I think, Fiston, maybe you're more optimistic Be than, well, than uh, you, Well, it's a very, um, I'm sure, it's, the thing is, it, it, it, it, things are so rapidly changing. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously, since since um, uh, the last oh, it was 2017, with the presidential, uh, you know, extending the executive powers of the, pre the president, uh, things are so rapidly changing that I don't feel like, uh, uh, uh, you know, it was a very different situation. It was much more fluid when I was there in 2013. Seems like a lifetime away. So, yes, it's we're dealing with a different, uh, the, the, the culture war has definitely become more entrenched and conservative Muslims, uh, you know, feel that at last, you know, after being suppressed for so long, they have a voice, they have a, a stake in the culture. Uh, yeah, I mean, um there's also the issue that some Turkish artists are kind of working abroad. Um, and Tuna, you mentioned uh, to me um, when we've met previously the uh, the House of Wisdom exhibition recently. And I wondered if you'd like to talk a bit about that. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, in terms of optimism, I have to say that I was extremely optimistic in uh, 2015, for instance, just such a tiny time uh, ago. And then in 2017, I was so pessimistic that I had to leave the country. So, I mean, yes, I understand how these things can rapidly change, and I'm hoping that it will change again, obviously. However, um, actually, House of Wisdom, although it was first uh, shown as, uh, as an exhibition in Berlin, it was shown in Istanbul as part of of the public program of the Istanbul Biennale as well. So, um, and it is, uh, it brings together 40 different artists, most of them from Turkey, who are still working in Turkey, uh, I have to say. It is all about uh, censorship uh, as well, censorship of books, basically, uh, and um, and lost libraries and things like that. And uh, after it was shown in Berlin and Istanbul, it went to Amsterdam. And uh, just a couple of months ago, it was in the UK in uh, Nottingham. Uh, and wherever it goes, it uh, sort of incorporates a new artwork from where it has been, from Berlin, from Amsterdam, from the UK as well. Because obviously censorship uh, is not just a Turkish or a Middle Eastern problem. It is uh, definitely a problem uh, throughout the world. And um, there are so many, uh, all the artworks are dealing with censorship. Uh, but to give an um, idea, I'll just talk about one from Ali Taptuk, uh, which was about a censored book that was censored in uh, UK, in the UK as well, once upon a time. Uh, it is uh, Henry Miller's uh, book, um, the the cancer uh, Capricorn. I'm oh, sorry. Tropic of Capricorn. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, what happened when it was uh, censored in Turkey was that uh, a lot of um, people came together and they uh, printed a book version uh, that uh, sort of had uh, um, black on top of every part uh, that was censored. But as an index, uh, they uh, printed the. Um, 
court recordings uh, and you actually have in the court recordings everything that was censored uh, and you can't ban court, uh, the publishing of court recordings so they made actually what was then never considered a uh, work uh, of contemporary art basically and what uh, Ali Taptuk is doing in this exhibition is sort of inversing this and creating new books and showing them so what he's doing is actually he's showing that this is an old problem, which is not a local problem either, and not necessarily about only uh, what we would consider politics in the big sense. Well, so. regarding publishing and censorship, I'm particularly looking forward to the English translation of Salahettin Demirtash's uh, book, which he's written from prison, a volume of short stories called Dawn, which is being published by Penguin in April. Uh, and there are 11 stories here, often dealing with like working class Kurdish life in Turkey. Uh, but one story uh, is addressed to the prison letter reading committee who vet his writing uh, that he sends sends from his cell. Um, I think that's going to be um, really worth a read. I'm looking forward to to that. Um, London-based listeners, you've got another few days to catch uh, Belitsar's work at Pier in uh, Hoxton, uh, which deals with police and military violence against Kurdish people in southeast Turkey, and particularly how this work is represented um, in the Turkish media, which, like I said uh, earlier, is largely con controlled by um, uh, pro-government businesses. Um, I mean, there is more uh, international pressure on Erdogan. I think people outside of Turkey are becoming increasingly aware of the regime's treatment of artists and journalists. Um, so, for example, 38 Nobel laureates recently signed an open letter quoting Erdogan in 2009 that I mentioned at the top of the show, where he said that the old Turkey he used to sentence its great writers to prison is gone forever. Uh, and I think we found out that's not the case at all. Um, you know this this political climate is also encouraging um you know extra parliamentary forces to intimidate creative figures uh so for example on the 20th of december last year uh, the poet ahmet telly did a reading at hachatepa university in ankara and was threatened by 30 fascists who came in and threatened to kill him um so you know the, the the climate is very difficult i think for creative artists working in turkey at the moment um the Biennial is happening again this year. It's being curated by uh, relational aesthetics specialist Nicola Burio, uh, who stresses Istanbul as a specific crossing point and says it takes on special significance in the global political era, which sounds to me like a piece of positioning that is trying to leave room for kind of political art without committing to it in any way. Um, I mean, one of the places I visited in Istanbul was a smaller gallery called OJ, stands for Orange Juice, which aims to launch Turkish artists to Western European audiences. So I wonder if that's a kind of tacit acknowledgement that artists will be able to say a lot more about Turkey if they're not there. Um, I saw an interesting show by a young artist called Pina Marul, for example, called Unknowns, kind of post-internet art. Um, inspired by uh, a UFO researcher called Maximilian de Lafayette, uh, drew on sort of science fiction and cyberpunk films. It's very interesting work, um, which I recommend looking up. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's been international pressure for the release of journalists and artists. So the Academy of the Arts in Berlin have asked Angela Merkel to commit to working towards the immediate release of imprisoned artists in, in Turkey. Um, Turkey had accused Germany of sheltering Kurdish terrorists and threatened to scrap the EU migrant deal. Um, so I think that's that's the situation uh, coming into um, 2019. Um, so we've just got like a couple of minutes left. So I'd just like to ask you both if you've got any concluding remarks, if you have any hope for, for change or maybe how you see things going over the next kind of couple of years. I hope we have hope. <laughs> we can't uh, go on without hope. Uh, I am very hopeful in many ways, um, but I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> Well, theoretically, Erdogan can, um, uh, could be in power until 2029 with his new executive powers. Um, the, the, the thing is, the, the, Turkey has had such a... I mean, in the 90s, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and uh, the prime minister, the female prime minister, Tansu Gilead, it was a time of 
liberalisation, the free market, she was compared to Thatcher. Um, and it was, once again, you know, very Western-looking, looking to the EU. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't forget that Turkey, over the last 60 years, have ha they've had a military coup every decade, practically. Not the 90s, I don't think, but every decade, bar the 90s. So, we'll see. We just have to wait and see. Right. Well, um... That's uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, thank you to Fissan Gunner and Shuna Erdem of the Istanbul Queer Art Collective for joining me in the Resonance 104.4 FM studio. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Um, I will be back next week with a show on the cultural responses to the Spanish Civil War with Lara Alonso Corona. Um, please do find us on Twitter, sweet underscore 212, and on SoundCloud, sweet dash 212 and I'll be back next week take care, goodbye This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.